I'm just sat in the workshop, delicious coffee in hand, and I'm eagerly awaiting my next podcast guest, the extraordinary Sabrina Cohen-Hatton. I've been telling anyone, well, anyone that will listen, that she's a real-life superwoman, a firefighter, she's a psychologist, and an accomplished author. But what I know more than anything after my research and especially on the eve of International Women's Day is she just epitomises women's strength, the strength that we possess. She's overcome such adversity in order to achieve the impossible and I'm betting there's going to be tears and I'm not going to apologise on this one. It's just going to be a beautifully inspiring story. I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. I'm the founder of Not On The High Street and Holly & Co and I'm the UK ambassador of creative small businesses. I believe that having a business, doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life and my dream is to help everybody start theirs. So I've reached out to all my favourite small businesses, acclaimed entrepreneurs and those who just simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to our sponsor, NatWest, who have helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown. You will find that Hi, Sabrina. You are the first firefighter we've ever had on this podcast. Often we interview business founders and entrepreneurs, but when I came across your story, it's one of the most inspirational and entrepreneurial journeys I've ever heard. I knew it'd be a complete privilege to share it on this podcast. So thank you so much for agreeing to spend time with me this evening. Oh, it's such a pleasure, honestly. And it's lovely to be a first. Oh, well, that's good. Well, (laughs) I'm going to start right from the beginning. I understand um, parts of your life have been distressing to recall. And so if there's anything that you would rather me not answer just please say but um sorry we've got tissues okay good yes we we do (laughs) that sometime there is a bit of crying in this podcast um we're going to start with your childhood so going right back to the beginning you were born in Marshfield South Wales what was the early years like for you was it a happy childhood so in the very very early years before my dad got diagnosed with a brain tumor then yeah it was and I kind of think back Back to those times and my mum and my dad were so crazy in love honestly it was the best example of I suppose a, a couple in love that we could have asked for as young children to see but yeah if I go back to the early early years there was me and my little brother my mum and my dad had a they had a business actually a, a pizzeria in Cardiff so they had a small business themselves um, which was a, a tough step. work. It was is. tough work, but before they did that, my dad was um, actually very good at playing cards. So he he made his initial initial money playing cards in London, which is <laughs> where he met my mum, who was a Playboy bunny in the uh, and a croupier in the Playboy casinos in London. So oh my <laughs> goodness! Yeah, so uh, they they what an of, interesting start oh, that was. I tell you what, they've got some stories. But everything changed. Dramatically, as you refer to there, when your father died of brain tumour and you ended up living on the streets at the age of 15. My son has 
just turned 15 very recently. And when I read your story, it made me so incredibly emotional and actually very protective over you because I cannot even begin to imagine what life was like for you then. Firstly, losing a father so young and then having to survive on the streets. Well, after my father died, my mum suffered really badly with her mental health. And I've always said that if someone goes to war with their demons, it's everyone around them that gets hit by the shrapnel. And that was certainly the case for our family. And we spent quite a long time living in abject poverty. Her business failed and everything started to generate down. And we kind of grew up from the age of probably about 10, I think, on benefits. And life was really tough. I mean, we would go for extended periods without any electricity because you couldn't put any money in the meter. There was no hot water. There was no central heating. It was, it was really, really difficult. Um, and it got to the point where the environment that we were in and the situation that we were in, especially trying to care for my mum at the time, was just too much, and I ended up sleeping rough, and that was a really, really, really difficult thing to do. I mean, you imagine as a young girl that age experiencing homelessness... I mean, the practicalities of it are just impossible. And I was adamant that I didn't want to go into care. We had a social worker who actually, I've got to be honest, I didn't realise his value until at least 20 years later. Mm. He was an amazing man. But at the time, I hated his guts because I was brought up to mistrust that kind of authority figure and they're going to put you in care and it's going to be like a Dickensian workhouse and you'll be beaten every day and fed gruel. So I wanted with all my power to avoid going into care. So I carried on going into school. I tried to pretend that everything was okay, even though it really wasn't. So your independence was very, very important to you yeah. from such a young age yeah. you, you you wanted to be self-sufficient you didn't want to go into any system mm. it felt like prison mm. it felt like that would be a prison so it was it was really really horrible I mean I had some horrific experiences one um which I'm, I'm happy to recount is that I wanted to go to sleep somewhere light so I tried to go to sleep in a subway because you know they've got the the lighting mm-hmm. strips in there I can remember putting my cardboard down on the floor and kind of bedding down. And I had a little stray dog as well um, who befriended me as much as I befriended him, I think. And he was kind of tucked down at the bottom of my sleeping bag. And I woke up, it must have been early hours of the morning, something like that. And I could feel my sleeping bag getting wet and I could hear some drunk guy cackling. And I was like, oh my God, what's happening? And I kind of poked my head out the sleeping bag and realised this guy was urinating on me while I was asleep. Um, except <laughs> I think he underestimated what how a dog would react to that, <laughs> which wasn't too kindly, and that's not the kind of thing you should be waving around at an angry dog. So let's just say I don't think he's going to be doing that again anytime soon. Um, but the practicalities of that were impossible. I had no clean clothes. I had nowhere to go. I didn't have access to clean bedding. So I just went into the middle of town and sat on a bench and pulled my knees up to my chest and sat there till the sun came up and cried my eyes out. And then when morning broke, I went down to the bus station when it would open up at six o'clock in the morning, had a quick wash in the sinks there, pulled a very crumpled school uniform out my bag, put it on, sat at the bus stop, waited for the bus, and then I went to school. 
Uh, it's just, uh, you know, normally my tears are at the end of this and we've just begun. Um, how do you think that this experience has changed you forever? You must have learned just unbelievable, powerful life lessons that so many of us would never have learnt. Yeah, well, it certainly makes me put things into perspective. Um, when I was trying to get myself out of that situation, I realised very quickly that there was no or very little help available to me at that age. I was about 16 um, when I went to try to get help and tried to find my old social worker, found that he wasn't there anymore. So then I tried to get on the council housing list and I found out that um, because I was already homeless, I wasn't a priority. So they would prioritise people who were about to become homeless. And that sounds really harsh, but actually I wouldn't wish that on anyone. And if I'm already in that situation and it means someone else doesn't have to start, well, I'll, I'll take it. It's fine. Um, and then I tried to see if I was entitled to any benefits, but because I wasn't 18 yet, I was only entitled to £15 a fortnight bridging allowance. Don't spend it all at once. Yeah. So <laughs> I then, um, I, was, I was selling the big issue. And selling it in Newport, where I was, I really only could earn enough to live hand-to-mouth because there were about 12 other people also selling it. So then I found a place where no one else was selling it, which was a little village called Monmouth. So I, it was about an hour away on a bus. So I'd get on the bus at 7 o'clock in the morning and I'd be there till 7 o'clock at night until I sold all of them. It's true story of survival. I read that over 700 people die on the streets in England and Wales every year. And I know everyone on this listening to this podcast will be horrified by these statistics. What do you think we can do to help others that see someone in your situation? It's a really good question, actually. And, and, and I can relate to it. When I was 17, I'd already been to seven funerals, if you include my father's in that as well. Um, and it's a really horrible, horrible existence. And I think that fixing it is a societal problem. And that would be too big for any one of us to try to wait for. But I would also argue neither should you have to. I'm a huge believer in social mobility. And I don't think that you have to wait for some kind of policy change. We underestimate the impact that we can all have on people. One of the things that I experienced during that time was people looking at me like I had no worth and like I had no value. People would walk past me like I was a ghost sitting on the side of the street, like I wasn't even there. And as much as we like to think that we don't care what people think, actually it becomes internalised, it becomes part of your inner voice, how you speak to yourself, how you expect to be treated, how you expect the world to respond to you. So even if there yeah. are opportunities, you're unlikely to reach for them because you don't feel like there's any point. So here's the thing. For me, we all need to consider how we respond to other people and how we judge them and see the human that's there regardless of how they present. The fire service took me on the strength of who they believed mm. I could be. They saw past mm. what on paper didn't look like a brilliant prospect and that's brought me where I am today. And we all have power or influence of some description. And I would argue that when we're when we're experiencing other people, when we're interacting with other people, if someone's sitting in front of us for an interview, see past your assumptions and really give that person a chance. I mean, we talk about unconscious bias a lot and with very good reason, we often talk about it in terms of protected characteristics. We need to broaden that discussion mm -hmm. to also think about those instant judgments we make based on someone's economic status or based on someone's social class because they really matter. 
They really matter. Going back to you, whilst living so vulnerably, you were still going to school every day, as you mm-hmm. said. You were at that bus stop. I mean, just even picturing you just sends a shiver down my spine. I just want to grab hold of you. Even you were in this situation when taking your GCSE exams, you know, what an unbelievably strong, phenomenal person you were then. What was school like in that situation? You know, you you put on your crumpled clothes, you went to school. Did you tell people that you were living on the streets? No, because kids are not very kind at that age anyway. They weren't very kind to me at the best of times. To be really honest. Right. And if I'm being truthful with you, I probably didn't present much differently to how I presented when I was living at home. Later on, people would see me selling the big issue and they were more aware. In fact, one of my teachers walked past me while I was selling the big issue, kind of made eye contact, looked at the floor and then crossed the road to avoid me. Yeah, which... Appalling. To me, you know, I I kind of look back and I and I try and laugh about it and think, well, maybe you just didn't have a pound. <laughs> but the reality was, for me at that point in time, I felt like literally nobody cared. It just felt so dehumanising, so dehumanising. And and those kind of experiences... And a duty of care well, to you. This was real life before the Children's Act of 2004, though I think we forget sometimes. Back then, and we're talking 1999 here... You, The public services, public bodies didn't have any statutory obligation to share information if they thought that a child was at risk. Um, loads of loads of different bodies would have would have held information on me, but no one, but no one was putting collaborated or did yeah no, inform- no. And you were having, am I right in saying this? You were having to hide your school books in boxes, in derelict buildings or wherever you were living, yeah. so that you, what would you hide them and then go and sell the big issue, or you just hide them to protect them? No, I would stash them away so that I would I'd be able to go back to them. Quite often, I'd need to take stuff and hide it in. Uh, in this derelict building which is uh, which is where we were staying at the time and when I say we there were lots of other rough sleepers in Newport at the time as well um, although that turned out to be a, a a really bad idea at one point in time there was a a guy that I wrote about in my book actually so I'm when you write non-fiction you have to be very careful to hide people's identities so I've I've not written his real name so in the book I refer to this guy as Dick and you'll see why but I just thought it was a wonderful way to immortalize him in I print think forever. that's a great name <laughs> I don't even know what you're going to say <laughs> well one there was this guy called Dick who was a complete kind of skinhead fascist with horrible fascist tattoos all over him and uh, he was in the derelict building the one day and he'd found this box and he'd seen my very Jewish surname on the end of one of the books which is Cohen and I came in to the the derelict building that night looking for somewhere to bed down and he started shouting abuse and he got his cigarette and he put his cigarette on my arm and burnt my arm and he was calling me an effing yid and uh I don't know why I thought that this was a good witty response, but all I could muster was, uh, I'm not an effing yid, you idiot, I'm effing Sephardic, as if he's got any kind of interest in the subtleties of my North African heritage. Um, But yeah, he hit me really hard and I had kind of blood trickling down my face and stuff. And I honestly thought he was going to kill me. Um, 
the other people that were sleeping there could hear the commotion and, and came out and kind of grabbed me and literally picked me up and, and took me out. But it, was, it wasn't it was a safe place to be. Um, none of it was a safe place to be. I kind of lost count of the amount of times I've been kicked and punched and spat at and, and all of that kind of stuff. And, and you think that when you're kind of, when you're in a position where you literally have nothing, then there might be some kindness in the world. And there is some. There is some, um, but there's a lot that's not. We're proud to partner with NatWest. They support small businesses in so many ways. Just one of these ways is through Backer Business. This programme will match fund up to a million pounds a year, creating hundreds of successful applicants when they crowdfund through Backer Business. Listen to the end of this podcast to find out more. With a continued commitment to small businesses, NatWest, in a world first, give away the rest of this ad break space to small businesses and independents. They truly believe in the power of small and want to give you the opportunity to showcase your business to hundreds and thousands of listeners. So without further ado, let me hand over to this week's NatWest Independent Ad Break winner. Hi, I'm Lucy. I'm Martha. And together we run Lucy Loves This, a small business selling location letter prints which celebrate the local. Everyone has places that have a special meaning to them. For me, it's Cambridge, where I grew up, and Leeds, where I met my husband. For me, it's Lancaster, where I went to uni, or Sydenham, where I bought my first home. And now we live in London, where I had the idea of a range of prints based on places. Intricate illustrations packed with local details of the area in the shape of the first letter of the place. So, C is for Cambridge, with the Anchor and Grantchester Meadows. And L is for Lancaster and the Welltale Cafe and Eric Morecambe. And we can create bespoke ranges for wholesalers too. So whether it's a coaster of Cardiff where you have your shop. Or a mug of Glasgow where your grandson's graduating. Everyone has a place which has a special place in their heart. So check out LucyLovesThis.com Or find us on Instagram at LucyLovesThis. If you'd like to take NatWest up on their generosity and be listened to by thousands of people, take that leap of faith and send in your small business advert to independentadbreaks at holly.co. We're looking for the wonderful stories that only small businesses have and have created more information on exactly what we're looking for on our website, holly.co. You mentioned about the big issue. You know, I was reflecting on on researching you and it's so entrepreneurial. With so little opportunities available to you, it was a resource. Mm -hmm. And you made um, Big Issues Vendor of the Week three times, (laughs) I've I've researched. We, we, We really are keen to interview the founder, John Anthony Bird, as it's one of the most incredible social businesses, really life changing for so many. And from that hard work, you managed to get your own first flat, Mm. which became the first step to you following your passion to become a firefighter. Mm. Can you just tell me about that? Because 
You saved up, is it right, £200. You needed three months deposit. And the big issue is an amazing, amazing social enterprise where each person selling it is a, is a trader. It's mm. like a micro-entrepreneur. Mm. You buy mm. a magazine and then you sell it on for a profit. And mm. so I started selling this. And the next life lesson that it taught me is if you want to change things, no one's going to give it to you on a plate. You've got to work damn hard for You're it. You've got to do it yourself. Yeah, yeah. It actually, it actually took me three attempts to get off the streets, <laughs> believe it or not. So I bought a van and I slept in this van for a while, which actually was the best thing that I could have done because it was secure, it was safe, and I could lock the door. Yeah. And, and it was after that then that I saved up enough to get somewhere that was away from everything and everyone that I knew because I knew that all the time I was selling the big issue, I wasn't going to be able to kind of extract myself from that, from where I was. And it was, you could never start afresh because you'd kind of go for a, a job interview or something and they'd be like, well, what do you do? And I'd well, I sell the big issue. <laughs> it's just, yeah. it wasn't going to work. So I had to... It wasn't to, what they wanted to hear. No, I had to cut. I had to absolutely cut. Um, and so I moved up to a little place called Risker um, where... No one would recognise me. No one would look at me with pity. And that's when I started to uh, try to join the fire service. And, you know, the fire service is such an amazing, amazing career. And people would often Yeah, but why of, were you drawn? What, what's the passion behind this? Well, for me, I, when the idea of secure accommodation and a new life was becoming a reality... Yeah then I started to think about what else I could do with my life. And one of the things I'd experienced felt like the worst day of my life every single day. And every day I'd wake up and think, well, you know, today I'll be better. And then it inevitably wasn't. And the thing about the fire service is you're trusted by people to know what to do when they're having the worst day of their lives. And if you can't make it any better, at least you can stop it getting any worse. And that really was what attracted me to the career so you know I felt like I could relate to it yeah and you applied to over 30 different fire stations yeah initially I joined as a retained firefighter so you're kind of part-time and you'd respond with a pager and then when I applied to 31 different fire services I was applying for a full-time position so you've got to kind of reapply and retrain and everything and it's hugely competitive I think at the time that I was applying the average was around 9,000 people going for each each kind of 10 jobs you know it what the odds were incredible yeah hence you really had to want it and keep going and keep Um, going what were those first early days like well they weren't easy I'll be honest um but I'm going to caveat that by saying I've also had some of the the best experiences of my life in the fire service as well and I've worked with people who still to this day are like big brothers to me and who have pushed me so hard and believed in me so strongly that I've been able to do things I never thought I was capable of doing before you know so I want to put that there first so that this is in context I had some horrible experiences early on I had what age were you now what what's 18 18 yeah 18 Wow. Yeah. So I had people that would regularly say to me, I just don't think that it's a job for women. No offence to you. And eventually I'd be like, yeah, well, I don't think it's a job for morons, but here we are, <laughs> mate. You know, <laughs> forgive me. <laughs> I, you know, 
what, why would you say that to an 18 year old kid effectively? You know, I'd, I'd experienced sexual harassment. I'd had unsolicited dick pics sent directly to my phone. Um, although in this guy's defense, it was a very small screen in those days, you know, I won't yep. judge him on it. <laughs> oh my goodness. I know. And I've, there was one guy that told me I was not going to get the promotion because I didn't have a, mm, Right. And after he said this to me about four times, I kind of said, well, look, I might not have a, mm, but I'm working for one, clearly, which I think is the same handicap. So, you know. <laughs> they obviously, they, you know, did you hide your background? Yeah. Yeah. So they didn't know what you'd gone through. No. They didn't know what a tough cookie they were actually dealing with. It's, it's, I was reading up a bit of history and statistics on female firefighters. And um, I read that Josephine um, Reynolds was the first female fire officer in just um, 1982. She was 38 years old and she was the first woman to qualify to drive a fire engine. She sounded like a complete pioneer and I can't even imagine the level of sexism she had to then endure. Mm. And then more recently, Danny Cotton became the first ever commissioner of the mm. London Fire Brigade in 2017. But I can imagine we've still got a huge way to go because the statistics still being that only 5% of firefighters are women, with more people called Chris than women working in this profession. Oh, and that's chiefs so there's more oh, chiefs called chris than there's women more chiefs. chiefs called chris right so and you're just one of six female fire chiefs in the uk and you're the youngest when you look back at your i, I know we'll go on to talk about your younger self but you look back at that girl and you look at that statistic and you look at what i mean just the, the stats tell you you've done something extraordinary can you believe it so it's it's strange, and I think that, you know, if you'd have told me then what I was going to be doing now, I don't think that I would have believed you, but I feel very strongly now that it's still the same me that I was back then. I'm just doing something differently today. Um, I think it can be really easy to believe that your circumstances define you and define who you are, and that can be incredibly self-limiting. And we can also spend so much energy trying to forget a part of our history. And, and, you know, I know more than most how difficult that is. Actually, it's more powerful if you look it in the eyes, even if it's difficult, and say, this is me. And also, there's a real point here, and especially in leadership roles, regardless of whether it's women in leadership roles or men in leadership roles, we always want to present the best side of ourselves, don't we? And we fear that people are going to look at us and think that we have to have every single answer at the tips of our fingers, especially in my industry. You know, yeah. fire, fire chiefs, yeah. you're supposed to go to sleep in chain mail. You know, you're invincible, <laughs> you're infallible. Yeah. And so standing up in front of people at the point where I'm at the kind of pinnacle of my career and saying, hey, I'm vulnerable, that was a really tough thing to do. But also, I think if we are more open about the failures and the difficulties and the challenges, yes. then maybe the journey won't be so difficult for other people who yeah. are just coming up behind us. And honestly, since I've been talking about this so openly, the amount of people who've got in touch with me who are doing okay today, but have said, I was homeless when I was a teenager, or I was in and out the care system, and I thought that I was never going to come out of it. It's been phenomenal. I've had to date three people in the fire service, two are firefighters, one woman who at a conference that I was speaking at, a fire service conference, had the courage to stand up in front of the whole audience and say, 
I was homeless and I'm really grateful that you're talking about it because now I feel like I can tell people. That was so powerful. Honestly, the amount of people who've had these experiences, they're not unique to me. This isn't something that, you know, I'm the only pioneer of. There are so many people that have gone through it and come out the other side. But you know what? We're too ashamed to talk about it and we shouldn't be. And so we have to start to break down that stigma and see homelessness as an experience and not as an identity. Wow, God, that's powerful. Why do you think that there is such low numbers of women in your profession? And what do you think can be done um, to change that it's it's not that way is it in the US or Brazil they've got a far higher percentage of women in the fire brigades than we do in the UK why is that in South America more so than North America um are in the UK it's still very low I think we're up to about 6.4 percent now and we celebrated that this year because it was the first time that the number of women that joined had truly increased rather than the percentage increasing because more men had retired (laughs) right okay yes yes welcome to 2020 yes um but there's a there's a point behind this for me and I've never been one to believe in in kind of arbitrary quotas I strongly believe in getting the right candidates and the best candidates for the job and firefighting's not for everyone but because it's hard we need the best of the best and I know I'm only attracting the best of the best who can relate to the stereotype of a firefighter and think oh I could do that I could see myself in those boots. So I honestly think that some of the best firefighters out there aren't even thinking about it because they don't see themselves as that stereotype. And when you think about the stereotype, it's so strong and so pervasive. And people think about the calendar model version of a firefighter, that heroic uh, figure that's going to run into burning buildings and come out with two children under each arm and a puppy in their teeth. You know, the reality is very, very different. And the thing about the fire service is the kind of qualities you need to be a good firefighter are to do with being calm under pressure, being decisive, being able to problem solve when the pressure's on. None of these things are determined by gender. Mm. And people think that you have to be, you know, super strong. You have to be fit. Um, But they think that you've got to be built a certain way to be able to do this. And the reality is we work in a team. And when you have a team, you need different strengths and different skills you would never have a toolbox full of 10 mil spanners because it would be completely useless unless you had billions of, you know, 10 mil nuts and bolts. It's not going to be helpful. So, you know, the example I give is I would never be the one that would be given a sledgehammer and and told to go and bang that door down, but I would be the first one that would be shoved through the little hole that that it would create. You know, we have to work as a team. And what are you doing, actually, as, as a pioneering woman yourself, and think about actually other people right now thinking about their their male dominated industries and dealing with sexism and things and you've dealt with it and you experienced it you know what are you doing to try and change that narrative there's a lot that I'm trying to do to challenge the stereotype of a firefighter I honestly think that we have more resistance from from outside of the fire service than we do from within because it's kind of like this social conditioning for what kind of jobs women should do and what kind of jobs men should do and even though we know that that's not the case those kind of um 
gendered roles are instilled from such a young age. I mean, gender stereotypes are set from the age of 10. The age of 10. My daughter's 10. You know, I kind of think, oh my goodness, you know, it is so young that we have to do so much more with our children as well to be able to break down this stereotype. So I believe very strongly in presenting yourself as who you are. I think I've seen actually many women in leadership roles starting to display very male characteristics. Now, it's human nature to want to try to fit in. And when all of your role models in those kind of positions have been men who have been successful by by showing those characteristics sort of the alpha female we yeah. sometimes call it don't yeah, yeah. it's yeah. very natural i to talk try about to it in business them. i was playing a she-man yeah you know yes. <laughs> you know yeah. i was i was becoming the woman i thought i needed to be within business yeah so you know i talk about you know double spanks very high heels a certain way of dressing yeah. that would be appropriate to a businesswoman. Yeah. Um, because, of course, what I wore would define how I thought. Um, and yet then some of the characteristics I was building was, yeah, you started making decisions that actually weren't empathetic, mm. weren't caring. It's what you do not do in business. Mm. You need to stop behaving like this, Holly, and you need to start behaving like this. Mm. And it, it, it must happen in all industries. All industries, absolutely right. Absolutely right. And the thing is, I think the bits that we, we forget, actually, is this kind of social conditioning is so powerful. And there was a, a lovely example that I heard about um, where there was a, a woman called Heidi Royson who is an incredible... Incredible, incredible venture capitalist. She was so successful that she caught the eye of a professor at Harvard Business School who turned her, turned her, who wrote a case study about her, didn't turn her into a case study, he wasn't a magician. Um, But he wrote a case study about about her and presented it to his students at Harvard Business School. And he he made two versions of this case study and he changed only one word. Half of the students had Heidi Royson, half of the students had Howard Royson and then he surveyed them all afterwards and they recognized both of their achievements equally so that bit was good but they all thought that Howard would be a brilliant boss everyone wanted to go and work for this guy Heidi they thought she was quite cold and quite political and quite out for herself and no one was sure whether they'd want to work for her and that shows you two things it shows that positive correlation between success and likability for men and negative mm-hmm. correlation for mm-hmm. women mm-hmm. but it also shows you bearing in mind these students were both men and women it also shows you that just because you will perhaps suffer from an unconscious bias yourself or a prejudice yourself doesn't mean to say that you're not also going to perpetuate it so there is something mm. there where we all have to be so mindful so careful yeah what is it that we think of immediately when we think of leader and how can we challenge ourselves on that front and too? we've got to start challenging ourselves before we open our mouth right so it is that thing isn't it about yeah. how well yes I, I probably do already have a something in mind that's coming up. I'm not going to speak. I'm going to actually listen. I'm going to actually think about how I'm going to respond to this. I'm going to think if I am prejudiced, if yeah. I am about to say the typical thing. Mm. And we were just talking about it off air, weren't we? Yeah. About how women apologize for things. And we, we, we have yeah. so many things ingrained in us, don't we? But we... It has to change. And the only way we can change it is what you were saying actually yourself yeah. from within. Yeah. We 
we've teamed up with our friends at Three, and all year we'll be working together to make dreams come true. Share your dreams on social using hashtag Holly and Co Dreamer, and who knows what will come true. With a Three Means business plan, I love that you can get up to £500 worth of benefits from their partners to help give your business a lift in those early days. Now over to a short story about those that dreamed big and flew. Immortalised as not just the originator of the miniskirt, but an iconic fashion designer, businesswoman and entrepreneur, Mary Quant was entirely self-taught. She was convinced that fashion needed to be affordable, to be accessible to the young, so opened her first retail boutique, Bazaar, on the King's Road in London in 1955, introducing the mod era to the masses. She had seen a gap in the market, dreamed of innovating the sector and filled it with her creativity and originality. Her perception, business acumen and interpretation of fashion and design revolutionised conventional ideas of style. Although Quant solidified her place in fashion history by inventing the micro mini, it was her expansion into home goods, makeup and accessories that cemented her in business history. In 1966, Quant received her OBE for her contribution to the fashion industry. Never one to forget her recognisable style, she controversially arrived at Buckingham Palace to accept the honour in a miniskirt. Don't forget to share your own business dream using hashtag Holly and Co Dreamer. To discover more about business plans, search Three Means Business. After joining the fire service, so you progressed through the ranks quickly. And by 25, you were a station commander. <laughs> You're 25 years old. But you, it was an interest in psychology that added another dimension to your role. Could you tell us the story of what led you to study in that field? And you became Dr. Sabrina Cohen-Hatton. I mean, wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so I had an incident that completely changed the course of not just my career, but my whole life. So my husband and I, before we were married, we were both firefighters together on neighbouring stations. And one day I was called to an incident where a firefighter had been pretty badly burned. Um, and there was only one appliance involved and he was on it. So there was a one in four chance that it was him that was burned. And I found that so difficult. And I can remember it feeling like my whole world had just imploded. Mm. Because you know what? We go every day to people who've woken up to cornflakes and normality only to find they're in entire world entire world has been turned upside down and will never be the same again and in that moment I thought that that was going to be me so anyway we got there and I got off the the truck and I couldn't see anything initially um but there were a huddle of firefighters over someone and their kind of legs were sticking out and all I could see was boots and knees so I couldn't see who it was anyway I started to kind of rush over and then I could see Mike stand up and I realised it wasn't him. And it, honestly, it felt like I'd been flawed. I bit down on my lip so hard to stop myself crying that I've still got a scar in my lip to this very day. <laughs> and then somehow, incredibly, I went and joined my crew and we dealt with the scene. But it turned out that they'd been called to an exploding pavement. 
Now, I don't know what your experience is of either explosions or pavements, but you don't tend to put the two together. (laughs) So they kind of thought it was a hoax. Anyway, it turned out to be um, a fault in an underground electrical junction box, and every so often it would periodically shoot flame out of the ground. But Mike had been lying on the floor on his belly with his head in the pit poking around wondering what on earth it was with another colleague of his. Anyway, they both got up and went to get the lid to put it back on and his colleague was stood over um, over the, the pit as it kind of shot flame up. Had it been moments earlier, Mike would have been killed instantly. There's mm. no question. So as much as I felt this enormous sense of relief, I also felt this incredible sense of guilt because I felt like by not wanting it to be Mike so badly, I felt like I'd wished it on someone, someone else. else. And this someone else was our friend. And I found that really hard. And for a couple of months afterwards, I was kind of... I'd be thinking about it every so often. And then it would come into my head like an intrusive thought when, you know, I'm just kind of going for a drink out with friends or lying in bed at night. And honestly, Holly, I felt like the world's worst human being. I felt subhuman for feeling like I could wish this on someone. It was awful. And then I thought, well, I can't deal with this anymore. And I didn't want to speak to people because I was really worried at that time that people would think that I was weak or that I couldn't Mm -hmm. cope. And Mm -hmm. if I'm being really honest, I was even worried that, you know, there were people who would think that I was weak because I was a woman. So, you know, it would show that I wasn't capable of being in the job anyway. I know now that was a completely ridiculous thing to think. But honestly, that was what was going through my mind at the time. So I thought, okay, well, maybe I can do something constructive here. Maybe I can have a look at what we can do to keep firefighters safer. But then what what I found absolutely floored me. And I found that 80% of injuries across all industries, not just the fire service, but 80% of injuries are caused by human error. Not a failure of a piece of equipment or a flawed policy, but a human mistake. The wrong choice in the wrong place at the wrong time. But that meant that people were getting hurt. That's not a statistic. Those are people like Mike and our friends. So then I thought, well, perhaps if I could understand human error a bit more, then perhaps I could do something about it. Um, But I didn't have any qualifications, really. I managed to get some GCSEs, but that was about it. And, you know, you're kind of talking about being a proper hardcore scientist to understand this, of which I was not one. So, So I thought, okay, well, you know, one foot in front of the other. I went back to the Open University and did a psychology degree. Did a PhD part-time at Cardiff Uni with a wonderful professor called Rob Honey. So I would go into the lab at half past five in the morning. I would run my experiments. I would then go into work, finish about half eight, go into work, pull a full shift in the fire service, go home, put my newborn to bed because she was born. She was three months old, I think. Is yeah, that right? she was born on the day my PhD was due to start. So I took a little bit of time to kind of just do my literature review. <laughs> I would read read neuroscience papers to her when I was trying to get her to sleep. And I kind of read it in mother ease because thinking, well, you know, she's not going to understand. And at least I can get some reading done. (laughs) I thought nothing had stuck. But when she went to nursery, instead of hippopotamus, she called it hippocampus and things like that. (laughs) It is so fascinating. I mean, I don't want to generalise, but it's... It was quite a female quality. And we talk about this on the podcast, you know, that this is sort of an age of female entrepreneurship. It was quite a female quality seeing the problem the way that you saw it, you know, and you went, 
like an entrepreneur, rolled up your sleeves and you said, right, well, no one else is going to fix it. Better fix that myself. And your research has been truly pioneering. And you went on to receive, I've been nervous to say this because I'm, I'm, yes, I feel like I'm going to get it wrong. The Biotechnology and Biological Sciences Research Council Social Impact Awards. Yes, we did. For keeping fire service officials safe. You completed this PhD in, as you said, three years. Mm. You researched seven, but I I mean three. How how did you do that? Um, Because I did not stop. I was like a machine for three years. But I tend to get quite single-minded about things as well. And I knew that it was going to be tough. I knew it was going to be tough when I took it on. But if you just dig in and you persevere, then you'll get through it. And the other thing was I was desperate to do something with it. And I had to get the PhD before I could start to do that broader research. I knew what we could do with it. And, you know, I'm so grateful that we were able to have some of the opportunities that we needed to um I'm also you know not daft to think that it was going to take a lot of hard work and a lot of sacrifice and although I make those sacrifices knowingly I know that people around me made that sacrifice on my behalf as well so you know I was I didn't spend as much time at home Mm -hmm. as I would have loved to Mm -hmm. I missed my daughter at breakfast but I made damn sure I was there every day to put her to bed you know my husband had been like a rock you know so I'm, I'm under no illusions that there was a team effort involved there as well and also something I want to just hone in on is that you know a lot of us are fueled in what we do and what we build because of a rocket fuel. And that was that someone told you that they didn't think that you could do it. Mm. And off you went and you proved them all, all wrong. Yeah, every time anyone would say to me, you can't do that, I'd be like, right, I'll show you. It's like when you're a kid and people say, I dare you. And you're like, oh, I've got to do it now. Yeah. That's just, <laughs> have you done that? It was the same thing. When I wanted to join the fire service, people laughed at me and said, you're too small. If you tell me there's no point in doing this research, I will make damn sure that I find the angle and I make sure that there is a point to it and that we do use it for good things, you know? It's a real driver. Um, And it's so important, I think, to have that kind of fuel behind you for whatever you're doing and whatever passion that you have. I like to think of the triangle of fire for being your kind of guide to life, right? And you've got three elements that you need for the triangle of fire. You need your oxygen, you need your fuel, and you need your heat. And I always see the oxygen as your kind of building blocks, what you have to put in. It's what you need for the chemical reaction for it to happen. And it's those life life lessons. And for me, those life lessons always come from your failure. So what do you learn from Mm. your failures that you Mm. apply to the situation? The next bit then, the fuel, well, there's a number of pieces of fuel that you could drive, you could pull on. And the biggest driver for me has always been about trying to help people in some way. And then the last point on that triangle is heat. And that's the bit that you're afraid of. What is it that pushes you back? What is it that you fear? And if you can look at that fear and look it in the eye and push past it, that is such a powerful combination. Mm. Tell me about how you didn't deal with mother's guilt, as in, I don't feel, you know, I look back at my time in building, not on the high street, and I missed Harry's first steps, and I missed his first words, and I did feel guilt, but I I quite quickly stopped it when I saw the great effect it was having 
on my son. And to this day now, I feel that I've really contributed to who he is today Mm. by this experience. How have you dealt with that? Because so many people listening, by the way, Mm. are, you know, they say they don't want to feel the guilt, but they do. Mm. It's a wasted emotion. Mm. It's you don't get a gold star for the amount of guilt you get. It's not like (laughs) that sort of, do you know what I mean? Like a barometer that, you know, the more guilt you feel, the more of a better mummy you are. No, you know, tell me how you dealt with it. Well, I did feel guilt. I still do feel guilt most days, to be honest with you. I think I would be, it'd be completely inauthentic of me to pretend otherwise. But I'm also quite realistic that part of that guilt is driven by social expectations, people telling you what you should and shouldn't do. People are always so quick to judge you. I take my comfort from watching my child grow in the same way that you described Mm. actually with yours and seeing that, you know, the young woman that she's growing into and the things that she then can go and do when she doesn't think are outside of her reach. You know, I mean, there were some really practical things that I used to do with her as well. So when I'd go into the lab on the weekends, she'd come in with me, you know, and she'd spend time. uh, If I could do things during family time and incorporate family time into them than I would you know so if I'm working at home I won't lock myself in the study I'll have the laptop on my lap and she'll be cuddled up next to me so for example when I was writing the book then I would be on the sofa with my legs up she would be on the sofa with her legs up the other way with her iPad and her uh, mm-hmm. her headphones on. So she'd be watching a film while I'd be writing. The dog would be on us as well. Yes. <laughs> so the whole thing becomes a family affair. Yes. Um, and, you know, I see some of the things that she speaks about now and it just fills me with pride. So I'll give you a, I'll give you a lovely example. We were in a cafe and there was a, a little family kind of on the table next to us. And the the dad told the daughter off for being bossy. And Gabby immediately spun around, looked at me with big open eyes, and she went, Mummy, that girl's not being bossy. That's leadership skills. (laughs) I love that. I was like, yes, darling. That's leadership skills. Love that. (laughs) She knows leadership skills. Isn't that fantastic? I remember when Harry asked me at a very young age, um, Baba, is it okay um, if I can have have a business? And I said, well, Harry, well, of course it is. But businesses are only run by women and I'm a boy. (laughs) And I said, but you are, but it's okay. You can run a business too. It's the changes, aren't we, that we're making these changes. Tell me from your research, is there anything that you could share with us to help people understand themselves a bit more or tools that you've you feel might relate to people striving to maybe overcome things or to build things or to I don't know you you feel like your time and your expertise now on the on the brain yeah. uh, it would be wonderful to share anything that yeah. you think would be helpful yeah sure we developed a set of techniques called the decision controls which effectively we use to try to help people make better decisions um, especially in very difficult very dynamic circumstances but they apply just as much to all walks of life as they do to when you're making a, a kind of life and death decision in the fire service and essentially we recognize that there are a number of pathways that your brain will use to make a decision sometimes it will be a very analytical decision and that will happen in one part of your brain sometimes it'll be a very intuitive gut decision and that will be in a very different part of your brain you can't change the way you're going to make a decision depending on the situation. It's dependent on too many factors. But you do have an opportunity to intervene when you've made the decision 
but before you apply it. Mm. So we trained firefighters to, at that point, ask themselves three very rapid mental questions. And the first one is, what is it that I'm trying to achieve? What's my goal? The second one is, what do I expect to happen? Believe it or not, when people are making gut decisions, they're usually focused on a piece of the situation, not the big picture. So they're not thinking about what's going to happen next. They're very much kind of centered in the here and now. So that question helps to push people past the here and now and into the future, helps them to project. And then the third one is how does the benefit outweigh the risks? And when we decided to test these, we ran some national decision trials and we had half of the half of the firefighters trained on these new techniques, half of them trained on the old ones. And what we found was really phenomenal when they were using these new techniques. It was helping people to line up the kind of little things that they were doing with the big picture. So they were Mm. more focused on their goals. And it also pushed their situational awareness up to the highest level significantly more than the other group. And being able to kind of weigh up and justify what you're trying to do really helps you to kind of focus on on the outcome and not those kind of anxieties that you might have around it. So what is it that I'm trying to achieve? Uh, what do I expect to happen? And how is the benefit worth the risk? And you can apply it to all walks of life. You know, you really can. And fear, for example, I feel like I'm speaking probably to a top expert in dealing with fear and bravery. Fear holds us back from being successful for taking those risks. So for someone who has had to be almost brave every day, what advice would you share? I would say don't be afraid to be afraid. Being brave doesn't mean that you're not afraid of something. Being brave means that you do something even though you're afraid. That's the Mm. difference between bravery and fearlessness. And when you fear, when you have this constant pressure not to be afraid or not to show that you're afraid or you feel like you're failing because you're afraid afraid of stuff, don't feel that. It's perfectly normal. Be okay with it. Embrace it. But do it anyway. So that's this point of where we're now more and more talking about vulnerability. So vulnerability is when you're sharing your fear, Mm. learning to know that you've got a fear, facing it and doing it anyway. And that's the difference. And it was from doing this research, there was there was something about this word grit, you know, that there was this sort of survival instinct within you and grit You know, it's such an important thing that we embrace, isn't it? And when we look at our young and we look at our friends and people around us to inspire each other Mm. to have grit, to have bravery, to do these things. You know, what's your take on all of this now that you're here today and we're on this podcast? And are you proud of yourself? Yeah, I'm proud that I've come through it. Um, I'm proud that I've got an amazing little human being that I've actually created and that you know she's she's doing okay um and I'm really proud that I've been able to do things to help other people and that's that's the main Mm. purpose for me um but you're absolutely right with that point of grit if you're doing stuff that's too easy you're never going to grow and you know Gabby says to me sometimes oh mummy my school works hard I can't do it and I don't turn around and say to her, oh no it's not hard it's absolutely fine because that just makes you feel completely inadequate and the point that I say to her is yeah it's hard but you can do hard things come on let's let's have a chat about this let's work it out let's break it down it's okay for things to be hard it's okay to fail at stuff if you're not doing stuff that you fail you're probably not pushing yourself hard enough 
And I've got your book right next to me, (laughs) The Heat of the Moment, The Firefighter's Stories of Life and Death Decisions. Was this a risk for you to put... Yeah, I can imagine. Oh, my goodness me. Um, You're literally bearing all in in an industry where, you know, like I said, as a senior fire service leader, you're supposed to be completely invincible and infallible. And I'm kind of writing a book that talks about some of the moments where I've been afraid or where I've not been sure. And what's been lovely is that there are people who've got in touch with me from all over industries and said, oh, I thought it was just me that felt like that when I'm in this kind of a situation. So it's so helpful yeah. just to know so that... you're helping people you're not on again. Your own. I'm trying. I'm trying really hard. <laughs> you've been, you've been um, coming up to 20 years in the fire service. You've written this successful book. Um, you're, it doesn't seem like you're going to be slowing down. <laughs> you're so young, so beautiful. You're radiating in front of me. What is your future ambitions? Oh, my goodness me. Well, I'm absolutely 100% committed committed to the fire service and to my day job so you know I love that so much so I'm going to carry on doing that I'm going to carry on doing the research um I'm thinking about continuing with the writing because I really enjoyed that process I really really did so who knows um the book actually was picked up by a tv production company called Mm. Kudos who made Broadchurch and Grantchester and spooks, which I love. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, so it's, you know, very early stage development with those, but they've acquired the rights to the book. So, you know, who knows? Oh it could be goodness. it could be coming to a small screen. Oh, wow, <laughs> that is amazing. Oh, I could talk to you all night and you, you've you got a day job to get to tomorrow, so I'm not going to. But I come to the end of these interviews and I ask my guest if on a roller coaster in life, what would you say has been a low on that roller coaster? The first night that I slept rough. And where was that? It was in the porch of a derelict church in Newport. I just cannot even begin to think what you felt and I'm just so sorry that you went through that we talked about this earlier and something I wanted to ask you but I'd love to ask you now if I had walked past you tell me what I could have done that would have helped you practically well people often ask me this and I know that often people kind of hurry past and when I was in that situation I used to think that people hurried past because they didn't care I know now that people hurry past because they just don't know what to do or you know it's sad but there are so many people who are experiencing homelessness that I think that people almost become immune to it and expect to see it which is an awful position to be in it used to help me when people would just make eye contact acknowledge me and say hello have a conversation with me treat me like a human people were really kind and sometimes they would offer food or a hot drink and that was great people sometimes would offer money which was again incredibly kind and I know that the the kind of standard official advice is not to give money I sorry I disagree with it I'm not sure that I would have been able to survive unless people had have offered me money so I I slightly disagree with the official advice on that one controversial though it may be but that was just my experience but look we know that people can't change the world we know that no one can wave a magic wand and and change the situation um but what they can do is make you feel like a human at a point in time when your existence makes you feel otherwise 
Well, I just, I, I wish I had been there at that time and <laughs> I would you. have definitely have done that. Um, can you tell me, conversely, a great high that you've had? Yeah, I think, oh my gosh, there's quite a few. <laughs> I think my biggest high was when the research was integrated into our national policy because I knew at that point when we were going to roll out the techniques that I was going to be helping people that were in the situation that I was once in. And the biggest reward for me, it's not one of the the science awards that we've got, it's not a pat on the back, but it's going home and thinking about those sliding door scenarios where I know that someone else in my fire family might be going home that night and having a completely normal night when if the doors had slid the other way, it would have been otherwise. That's, mm. that's, my, that's my high. That's your high. Gosh, keep going, keep going. And tell me, is there someone that you think I could interview on this podcast that you feel would be inspiring to others? Yeah, I, so... This is a really good question and I thought really hard about this and the one that I would suggest is my grandmother who is an amazing, amazing woman. She is a Moroccan Jew and she got attacked uh, during a pogrom with a a machete um, and left for dead because she was Jewish. And Mm. when my grandfather went to collect her body, he went and pulled her out from a pile of corpses and she gasped for air. She was still alive. As soon as she was well enough, they fled Morocco. Now, despite this horrendous experience, I have never, ever once seen her hate or seen her resent or express anything other than love and compassion and empathy. So she would be incredible. Um, However, she doesn't actually speak any English. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yes. So that might be slightly (laughs) difficult. Um, <laughs> in the absence of my grandmother, I would uh, I would love to listen to Stephen Fry on your podcast because I love his take. I think that he challenges things and looks at them from a different perspective and his use of the English language. Oh, my goodness me. I've got such a brain crush on the guy. I could listen to yes. him for hours. So yes. Stephen Fry. Um, thank you, Sabrina. This has just been a fascinating interview. I, I know that so many people are going to come away from this with so much thought on words like grit and bravery and taking, you know, a 15 year old girl from a church doorway to now a doctor who's helping people, who is married, who is a 10-year-old little girl. And I'm just so thrilled for you and this entrepreneurial spirit and girl power. Congratulations on everything you've achieved. And it's that time at the podcast where I have to hand over to you. Um, I don't have to, but I can't wait to. um, uh, For you to read um, a letter that you have written to your younger self. There were quite a few tears when I wrote this. Oh, gosh. (laughs) But I will try and hold it together. (laughs) Dear younger me, some really horrible things are going to happen. But trust me, you are stronger than you think. You're stronger than anyone else thinks. So don't let their empty sounds drown out your inner voice. Never give up. Life isn't forever. So love while you can and cherish who you love. Don't go to bed on an argument. You'll learn this painfully when you fight with your dad, your Abba, when you're just nine years old. You'll refuse to come down out of sheer belligerence and instead you'll cry yourself to sleep. But when you wake up, he'll be gone. 
This is a painful lesson that you'll carry forever, but you will make damn sure that it's never, ever too late again. You'll lose more people, many more than you expect. You'll learn in Technicolor the fragility of life. You'll see it every single day. Although you'll eventually be one of the ones who are trusted to help in situations where life hangs on by a single thread. That experience, those lessons, will make you a better rescuer. They'll push you a little bit harder and a little bit further than you ever thought you were capable of. So don't be afraid to let it hurt. You'll get through it, you'll care, and you'll touch others' lives for the better. And for every iota of pain you experience, your capacity to love will grow. It'll be like concentrated coffee. On its own, it's bitter and overpowering, but when diluted with time, it will turn into something good. So don't be afraid to feel the pain of loss. It means that you felt love and that you'll love again squared. You will love like you never thought was possible when you have a child of your own. And you'll love her with such intensity that when you're with her, the sky could fall down around you and you wouldn't notice There'll be things that you're afraid of. They'll give you butterflies in your tummy and you'll question yourself. There are times when you'll feel like an imposter because people like you shouldn't be afraid. They should be brave. But but you'll learn, and this will take you a long time, that being brave doesn't mean you're not afraid of something. Being brave means pushing through something even though you're afraid. And you are brave. People will judge you all through your life. As much as you want to pretend it doesn't hurt, it does. Just as it hurts everyone else who gets judged and says it doesn't hurt. It's human nature. And that's okay. Because it will make you think more carefully about how you respond to others and how you will contribute to that little voice inside their heads that tells them whether they're worthy or have value or are brave enough to do something. Sometimes bad things will happen. Things will happen that aren't fair, that you don't want and that you don't like. Get used to it, girl, that's life. You can't always control what happens, and you can't even control how you feel about it, but you can control how you respond to it. So embrace your failures, the things that go wrong. You'll learn more from these than from anything that goes right. Now, you might already know this, but dogs will play a hugely important part of your life. (laughs) So much so that you'll spend 12 years searching for a breed that your allergy-inflicted husband's poor body can tolerate. Your perseverance will pay off. It will be worth those horse-strength antihistamines. From the start, your dogs will be your source of comfort, your source of companionship and a source of endless joy. No one will guard you like your dog. And before you do eventually get married, if your dog doesn't like him, your dog is probably right. If he doesn't like your dog, you won't even entertain him. This is good instinct. Dogs before dudes, every time. Pass it on to your daughter because it's sage advice. And your daughter will be beautiful, so get a big dog. And on the subject of your daughter, 
She will be little and fierce and raise her like she breathes fire. Because although some women fear the fire, other women are born from it. And she will burn bright. And so will her daughters. Love from very nearly middle-aged me. Oh, and P.S. Those tattoos at 14 that seem like such a great idea. Just so you know, they're really not. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that. And I can imagine it was incredibly so emotional to listen to, but so wonderful to hear. And I would say to anyone listening who have children, who have daughters, to um, get them, I know they'll kick and scream, to sit down and listen to this podcast. Because if anything, this has just been an amazing moment to watch a very strong woman who has battled so much write such an eloquent letter and um, and I just thank you. And I thank you for anyone listening who shared it with their daughters, because this is such an important message that we show. Us women can be fearful, but we can become Sabrinas. <laughs> thank you. You're welcome. And if anyone who is an entrepreneur out there that is into makeup, if someone could possibly make tear-proof makeup <laughs> and send need. it my way, I'd be very grateful. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Before you go, here's a little more about Backer Business. Last year, NatWest's CEO, Alison Rose, wrote the Rose Review and discovered that if women launched and scaled businesses at the same rate as men, it would represent an untapped £250 billion opportunity for the UK economy. Isn't that unbelievable? So they created Backer Business, managed by Crowdfunder. This programme will match fund up to a million pounds a year, creating hundreds of successful applicants when they crowdfund through Backer Business. To find out more information, search NatWest Backer Business. And if you've enjoyed this conversation, if it has helped you along your own journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing this episode and podcast? Your support means the world and it really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown You will find that all the things that I have said Will come to when you are lying in your bed And if you want your friends to come then